right now on Matter of Fact. More than 100 years ago, these Asian American settlers made a Louisiana village their home. It's that part of our American history that's not documented. Until they were nearly swept away by a storm's raging tides. It was always a place that was in peril, always. What can these early climate change victims teach us about the future of America's coastal communities? Plus, home, sweet home. They're back. I want that house and I want that house. The hosts of the hit HGTV show, Bargain Block, return. Is your strategy ultimately to help build wealth? They update us on their mission to renovate Detroit while battling lending inequality. Detroit is changing very rapidly. And a high-tech helping hand. How can we make our streets safer for all uh, vulnerable road users? How this researcher's innovative plan for the roads of Chattanooga, Tennessee could be a blueprint for other cities. I'm Soledad O'Brien, welcome to Matter of Fact. Climate change is a reality hitting home for a growing number of Americans. The aftermath of the storms in California shows how extreme weather is impacting lives. All across the nation, flooding and wildfires and hurricanes and drought are forcing people to relocate. In 2018, more than a million Americans moved because of climate issues. In some cases, entire communities are being resettled. Four years ago, the state of Louisiana used $12 million in federal disaster aid to relocate the people of Pecan Acres to higher ground. It was an endangered community in the Mississippi Delta. They're not the state's first victims of climate change, though. Our special contributor, Joey Chen, takes us to St. Bernard Parish, Louisiana, to a place where a people and their history were nearly washed away. Just beyond a blind pass at the edge of Lake Bourne lies a history nearly lost in these brackish waters. As unlikely as it might seem, this remote cove is where Asian America began. Bayou St. Malo, Louisiana. Why is St. Malo important? It's important as a site of, you know, the first Filipino-American settlement in the United States. We think about the beginning of Filipino-American history, Asian-American history. This right is where it begins. Right in the swamps of Louisiana, right, right in the marsh here. Don't feel badly if you've never heard of St. Malo. Randy Gonzalez hadn't either. And he's a Filipino-American from New Orleans, just 40 minutes away. The history books barely mention that Crescent City was a major world port beginning in the 1700s drawing Filipinos and other seafarers from Spanish colonies. An 1883 article provides what little is known about the early days of St. Malo. It begins, For nearly 50 years there has existed in the southeastern swamplands of Louisiana a certain strange settlement of Malay fishermen, Tagalas, from the Philippine Islands. They say when you entered the bayou, you wouldn't see the houses yet. But when you turn to Ben, Suddenly, you'd see rows of houses for a mile, you know, you see went down. House after house. House after house, just kind of stretching down the bayou. And when you say village, describe it to me. It's a bunch of uh, palmetto-covered huts. They were put on stilts, and they also, you know, had these kind of hat-shaped eaves, which were kind of familiar to the, to the Philippines. Also familiar, fishing in the shallow waters the shrimp dance to peel crustaceans from their shells, traditions and language brought from home, but with challenges that were familiar too. 
what happened to this community? Storms, right? The storms would destroy it, uh, you know, every 10 years, probably. It wasn't worth it to live there anymore. The final blow was the 1893 hurricane. The October storm wiped out St. Malo, which at its peak included 150 Filipinos, mostly men. Manila Village and smaller fish camps also dotted the bayou, but in time, all were washed away. These were the first climate refugees. It was always a place that was in peril, always. They could still make a living, but the trauma of going through those storms, some people just will end up giving up. There's a certain amount of resilience that everyone has to have to live out there, but at some point it's like, no, it's not worth it anymore. Many descendants scattered. Today, Louisiana has one of the smaller Filipino populations in the U.S. But old favorites are drawing a new generation back. What's in the dough? So it's just uh, rice flour, evaporated milk, coconut flakes. Jessica Bayuga knows the power her bunuelos and other family recipes have to draw Filipinos close. That's how I met my husband and um, how I met, how I still meet most Filipinos because they, they look for the food. <laughs> There's new, younger Filipinos, chefs cooking their mother's food or their grandmother's food, opening up their wounds and wanting to share their grandmother's cooking or, um, and then tell us about it and tell us their stories. Today, St. Malo's story rests on higher and drier ground at the Isleños Museum that honors the early Canary Islanders who came here too. Both groups determined to save the stories of their communities. It's that part of, of our American history that's not documented in the newspapers, not documented by the government or the storytellers, but documented at the kitchen table, you know, out on the pier gutting some ducks or, you know, fish or whatever they're doing. Like those stories that get shared in those moments, I think are really part of the fabric of communities. For a matter of fact, I'm Joey Chen in Bayou St. Malo. Next on Matter of Fact. I had no idea that there was a whole massive population of the U.S. that has major issues just getting a normal mortgage for a very low-priced house. We head back to Detroit to catch up with the hosts of HGTV's Bargain Block. What would you say is the main difference between when you started till now? What's next for the couple helping people become first-time homebuyers? Plus, we've heard of smart cars, but what about smart streets? How this technology could create safer intersections for drivers and pedestrians in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And later, a silent understanding between dogs and toddlers that helps children as they learn and grow. You're watching Matter of Fact, America's number one nationally syndicated public affairs news magazine. There's a sort of wait-and-see approach to the housing market this year. The supply is still limited, interest rates are high, and that's keeping people from being able to buy their first homes. Two-thirds of the U.S. population owns their own home. And in Detroit, that number is even lower. The most recent census shows about half of people within the city limits are homeowners. One couple's on a mission to change that. 
while the cameras roll. Keith Bynum and Evan Thomas are the host of HGTV's hit show, Bargain Block. They renovate rundown homes in Detroit. This is more than just a makeover show. They're also addressing the inequality in the housing opportunities. Our correspondent, Jessica Gomez, traveled to Detroit to see how they're helping people purchase their very first homes. Alexa lights off. When you think about how big the city is and how much there is still to do, it's a little overwhelming. Keith Bynum and Evan Thomas on their way to work. So we have houses on almost every one of these blocks. Their drive through the west side of Detroit, home to some of the most blighted neighborhoods in the city. So this house is what? It's around 1,100 square feet. It's yep. where the couple hosts their HGTV home renovation show, Bargain Block. This is like my dream kitchen. This is astonishing yes. to see. It's so much better to get the neighborhood looking better. The show follows Keith and Evan as they bring dying homes like this one back to life. It's so bright, super bright. When you think of a $100,000 house, I don't think many people think of like, you know, a little design and glitz and glam and everything's new. Lord have mercy. With help from Detroit native and realtor Shay Hicks Whitfield and a tight design budget, they price the homes to sell, mostly to first time buyers. When you see someone get that for the first time, it's pretty exciting that mm -hmm. not only are they getting an asset too, but oftentimes they're paying less for their current mortgage than they were paying in rent. So it's like the biggest win possible. The couple got the renovation bug while living in Colorado and moved to Detroit to start their business with big dreams, but little experience. Sleeping in the houses as we're working on them, it's a challenge. What was the thought process behind living in the homes as you were going? Necessity. <laughs> yeah, we didn't really have any other. We didn't have enough money to no buy money. two homes at once. Uh -oh. With the renovation costs sinking them into debt while on national TV, the two quickly learned remodeling the homes would be the easy part. I had no idea that there was a whole massive population of the U.S. that has major issues just getting a normal mortgage for a very low-priced house, right? Detroit's shrinking population and mass foreclosures during the Great Recession have left tens of thousands of forgotten homes. You've got this one started. It looks crazy right now, but it's started. Many in neighborhoods where the reality hosts say the impact of redlining when minority families were denied home loans lingers today. You have appraisers who are essentially afraid of these neighborhoods. They walk in, they see houses that kind of don't look as nice as the houses that like they're in, right? And then they kind of think, oh, well, this is a crappy neighborhood. And then they sort of like just lowball it. Yes, yeah. that would yeah. be amazing. Shay, who fights for fair appraisals, says it's often Keith and Evan who lose in the deal. They'll say it's okay, on to the next one let this buyer purchase it and move on. Like, we're not gonna take this dream away from this buyer just because an appraiser says it's not worth it. So that gets me every time. Ready? It's been a year since Rachel Haynes bought her bargain block home. She's the first homeowner in her family. That's the main goal of me buying the home to do, to ultimately build that wealth and be able to pass it down to my children. The improvements in her neighborhood, she says, are slowly catching on. Did you get the green already? Meantime, Keith and Evan, nearly out of debt, have opened a store in the community. Hello. Hi, guys. Morning. And finally bought a home of their own. 
for around $40,000. What has been the response from the folks in these neighborhoods? I've never experienced community like this. <laughs> their story resonating here and with their 20 million viewers. From a viewer standpoint, it's much more realistic. Like a lot of people, the majority of the country lives like we do. In Detroit, for matter of fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. Right after the break, I'll chat with Keith and Evan about the newest season of Bargain Block and about the changes that they're seeing in Detroit neighborhoods. Plus, a safer commute for you. We'll take a look at the computer-based mission to safeguard the roads. have a matter-of-fact update with the host of HGTV's Bargain Block, Keith Bynum and Evan Thomas. The couple is working in Detroit, Michigan to flip older homes and then sell them at affordable prices to first-time home buyers. They're currently shooting season number three, which airs this summer. Keith Bynum and Evan Thomas join me. Gentlemen, nice to see you. So season three is upon us. What would you say is the main difference between when you started till now? For season three, you'll get to see we're doing, a, well, if the historic board approves it, but we're doing a rather large addition to the house and um, replacing the garage and just kind of taking it back to the original beautiful historic house it was, so, and expanding it a little bit. Detroit is changing very rapidly. One of the major changes that we've seen is that there's definitely a lot less abandoned homes, which is making our job a little bit harder. So if we were to look at our budgets for season three versus season one, there's houses that are twice as much, and we're definitely not selling them for twice as much. So it is kind of a little bit of a margin crunch. Is your strategy ultimately to help build wealth because at the end of the day we know that home ownership is highly connected to correlated to uh, to to wealth one of the major issues that that we see in all of these neighborhoods is that for a long time a lot of these houses were really sort of like ridiculously under undervalued and so even if someone owned a home it had no value a lot of the first-time home buyers that buy these houses are also the first generationally to own a home. So it's kind of crazy to see what that does in their pride and really for the next generation too to see that come up is exciting. It's been really effective beyond the financial side on the community. It's people investing beyond money. It's investing in the actual, the schools and the living and all of the things that come with that. You go into a neighborhood and you make it much better. So I'm curious if you worry about that impact. Let's talk about the houses that you're not renovating. Do you suddenly make that neighborhood really expensive for the people who are, are there but don't own their homes? Detroit has been really smart about addressing this very problem and it's, um, I don't fully understand it so I, wanna, <laughs> I don't wanna overspeak, but it's uh, essentially like a slow ad adaptation of the tax value so over time it's a kind of gradual increase into the tax level that it should be and that helps kind of offset some of that potential for displacement which for a neighborhood like this um, it's really possible for that to happen there are other cities too unfortunately that have lots of homes that are in distress do you guys see yourselves moving into other neighborhoods after detroit or alongside of detroit i'm tied to detroit but i would love to mentor others in other cities like 
We've had people from Baltimore, Pittsburgh, DC reach out and say, you know, I'm on the same path, like tell us how you did this. And so I think there's opportunity for us to mentor at least. And if there's a show out of it, then so be it. I love hearing that. Thank you guys, I appreciate it. Keith Bynum and Evan Thomas, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks. You bet. Ahead on Matter of Fact, safer intersections for drivers, pedestrians, and cyclists. The high-tech plan that will put Chattanooga, Tennessee in the spotlight. And later, it is never too early to become a dog lover. Research explains the special bond between toddlers and dogs. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, Sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. Chattanooga, Tennessee is installing sensors at 86 downtown intersections. The city's using cameras, air quality monitors, and other devices to gather real-time data. For example, camera heat maps showing where people are jaywalking or when traffic comes dangerously close to bike lanes. The sensors report on the number and kinds of vehicles moving through intersections, and they gather information on pedestrian activity and traffic congestion and emission levels. All this helps researchers understand traffic patterns and potential dangers. We define some goals, like we have goals of um, related to pedestrian safety. How can we make our streets safer for all uh, vulnerable road users? How can we improve um, traffic flow? And based on the outcome of these projects, we will be seeing that, okay, what are the changes that needs to happen in the physical world? For example, the way that the currently the traffic controllers are working might not be uh, efficient. And based on that, adjust the traffic controllers. By next year, more than 100 intersections in downtown Chattanooga will be monitored. Once completed, it'll be the largest smart intersection network in the United States. Still ahead on Matter of Fact, cuteness overload with a message. How toddlers' interactions with dogs help them learn important lessons. Finally, having a family dog can provide all kinds of benefits for children, from giving them a playmate to teaching responsibility. Some studies have also shown that children are more comfortable reading to a dog instead of a person. There are also health benefits. Having a dog can decrease a child's risk of getting asthma. But is there a way to measure what children learn from their pets? Researchers from Duke University and the University of Michigan studied 97 toddlers interacting with dogs. They found the toddlers were twice as likely to help a dog reach for a toy or a treat if the dog showed an interest in that toy or treat. And the most active or lively dogs were the ones children rewarded the most. Overall, the study found that children as young as two years old were able to understand a dog's behavior and their needs and the children use that understanding to help their pets. Moral of the story, it is never too early to become a dog lover. And if you need more convincing, here are my foster fails, Coco and Teddy. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and YouTube.